Um, and I just want to review some of what we've been learning about parables. We learned that parables are spiritual truths told, along, told alongside a story that has an earthly context to it. In other words, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, we're also finding out that the Bible tells us that, and the reason why there's parables is because there's these people called fools um, who can't understand the parables when they hear them. It says they'll hear the words of the earthly story, but they can't understand its spiritual meaning. It just becomes another story from an ancient old dusty book. Now, in case you're wondering how a fool is defined, the word fool today, as per the dictionary, usually means a senseless fellow or a dullard. I had to look up dullard. Um, I've heard it before. I think I used to be one. Not sure. Um, but it literally means a slow or S-T-U-P-I-D person. I spell it because my grandchildren don't let me say it. <laughs> Apparently, it's a bad word now. So um, I had to spell it. But that doesn't really apply here. That doesn't really make sense because some of the most brilliant intellectuals in the world are considered by God to be fools. The biblical, de the biblical definition describes a fool as someone who disregards God's word. And I think that's a perfect way to describe um, what we're talking about when we think of fools in regards to the Bible. So church, why did Jesus speak in parables? To hide truth. He was hiding the truth from those who disregard God's word. Remember, his disciples came and asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? And Jesus replied, you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. And Jesus went on to say, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. And he continues and says, that is why I use parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. And sadly, church, there's an overwhelming number of people in the world, and now even within churches, who disregard God's word. I was in devotions a while back and thinking about this message, and I came across this verse, Proverbs 26, verse 9. It says, As a thorn goeth up into the hand of a drunkard, so is a parable in the mouth of fools. And then I was reading a statement, kind of looking into all this stuff, and it said, There are more fools today than ever, largely due to more education, for most educators are humanists who are fools by creed and content. Whether you agree or not, I think it kind of makes some sense. Romans chapter 1 reveals to us what man becomes when he doesn't glorify God, nor is he thankful to God. He becomes futile in his thoughts, and foolish, and his foolish heart is darkened. So this week, if you want, I gave it as homework to the last two, but I'm not going to do that to you guys. I'm going to give you the option. But your homework is this. Read Romans 1, and as you read it, compare it to what you see going on in the world today. And you're going to realize just how accurate Scripture really is. That said, the writer went on to say, many of those fools flock to the field of religion where they can make an easy living writing new Bible versions or telling stories from a pulpit to ignorant audiences. Now, it may seem harsh, but it's true that so many people in our day just sit in churches, getting entertained by these fools, and never open or read the scriptures to know that they're being deceived. I also heard it said that the only person more hopeless than a fool is a person who thinks he's wise when he's not. When his chest swells, the brain shrinks. Puffing your chest and thinking you're wise is actually worse than foolishness. 
And perhaps that's why we're seeing the explosive growth of the Laodicean church in our day that the Bible talks about. Because foolishness is abounding in a culture who disregards God's word. And many of them think they're saved. Well, that's, that's my introduction for today. So anybody who's hungry is free to go. I'll be leaving, so just so you know. We're actually going to just get into the message here. So I'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, and we'll be going and looking through the following seven verses. I'll give you a few minutes just to get there. As they say, it always sounds nice to hear the pages turning of a Bible. No offense to those who have phones. I'm using an iPad. So. Okay, verse 44. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, as we go through your word, I just pray, Lord, you'll give us that understanding. Lord, that we are not like the fools because we have the spiritual, we have the Holy Spirit, Lord, just to help enlighten us. And Lord, we have each other just to, share with and lord we just have you just to reveal your word to us and so lord, i pray you do that today i pray that um i will speak what you want me to speak and that lord we will not just hear the words um that are spoken or the words that we read on the page but we will put it into action lord we'll we'll take it to heart and we'll make it part of our life lord there's so many people that are just playing the game of church and going to church and hearing lovely stories, Lord, but I just pray that you'll begin to minister to their hearts and get them excited and into the word of God. So, Lord, we just thank you for our time. We thank you that um, you've blessed us with this place. You've blessed us with the freedom to come together again. And, Lord, we just uh, pray that we'll bring blessing to you as we do uh, honor your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. The parable of the hidden treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Though, I thought about it, and because um, we're talking about how would a fool interpret something like that, and so I, I just kind of wrote this out quick, <clears throat> about how somebody who doesn't have spiritual understanding might just read that and think of this uh, a story. So according to this and this would be their version of this scripture. So according to this dusty ancient old book, the kingdom is like finding a hidden treasure while a man is out on a walk. He sees the corner of a hidden treasure chest sticking out just above the ground. He stops, he studies it, and then decides to dig around it until he can pull it out and open it up. And there it is, treasure. <clears throat> Sorry. The chest is loaded with gold nuggets, gold coins, and precious jewels, and he quietly freaks out with joy but he knows it doesn't belong to him, so he hides it back in the ground so that nobody else can find it until he can sell everything he has and buys that piece of land. 
making the treasure rightfully his and living like a king for the rest of his life. It's a nice story, but it's got nothing to do with this parable. But to the fool, it might sound reasonable. But let's look at what this parable is really all about. What does Jesus want his disciples and his church to understand about what the kingdom is like? In this parable, the kingdom is likened to a man who finds some treasure and then sells everything and buys the field in order to gain the treasure therein. Now, you may have heard the parable taught this way, and apparently a lot of people have, because they've told me. Um, And I'm not saying that um, they can't believe this, but they believe that the treasure in the field is Jesus. We are the man or woman who found the treasure. So like the man or woman who found the treasure, we should sell everything that we have to follow him. And I know a lot of people have understood this this way. But, and I'm not going to say that it's wrong. I'm just going to say I have some concerns about that interpretation. I believe this parable should be taught this way. Jesus is the man, and we the church are the treasure. And I want you to think this through. When you were saved, how many of you sold everything you had to follow Jesus? None of us did that. We were simply born again. There was no payment that we had to make. There was nothing we had to buy. There's nothing we had to give other than give up our life of sin or at least surrender it. But there's nothing material that we ever had to give. We're just not saved that way. But there's somebody who did have to pay, and that's Jesus. He paid the ultimate price. He gave his life to purchase us. Why was the field the world purchased? Did the Lord want or need another planet? He already has gazillions. No, he wanted the treasure that was buried in the world. And this treasure is so wonderful that Jesus would give all, his very life on a cross, to purchase it. The treasure is the individual believer which makes up the church, which is his bride. This shows us how Jesus gave everything to redeem the whole world to preserve a treasure in it. And the treasure is his people. Isn't it awesome that he wants us? We who believe in him by faith? If you're listening and you're not a believer, but wondering if Jesus wants you, then just listen to what he says. In John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Charles Spurgeon said, So did Jesus himself, at the utmost cost, buy the world to gain his church, which was the treasure which he desired. Now before I move on to the next parable, uh, I want you guys to know and understand that I'll be dealing with Israel when it comes to this parable, because they're a huge part of this, this parable. But I'm going to do that towards the end. Um, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. That's never changed. And so I will go through that a little bit later. I do want to get on to the parable of the pearl of great price. It says in verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. It's a similar parable. It's kind of really saying sort of the same thing. And why would, you do two, why would Jesus tell two parables seemingly the same, right at one after the other? And that suggests that it's because these two short parables teach the same lesson. 
Perhaps it's because Jesus wanted his disciples and all those who believe in him to understand that the kingdom of heaven is of unknowable value. A man named Barclay said, To the ancient peoples, as we have just seen, a pearl was the loveliest of all possessions. That means that the kingdom of heaven is the loveliest thing in the world. Now let's look at the merchant, or who the merchant is and who the pearl of great price represents. In the old hymn, I found the pearl of great price, written by John Mason in 1683. The lyrics start out this way. And um, first two services I mentioned about singing, that was shut down fairly quick. Um, people apparently, Karen, are you telling people things about me? <laughs> like, really? Because, like, can I sing it in the choir? Can I? <laughs> Pearl of Great Price? Can I do a solo? <laughs> it's not a comedy show. <laughs> but the lyric goes like this. I'm not doing. I'm only doing the first. I don't know. What, I don't know what the little sections are called. What are they called? Stanzas. Stanzas. I got it right. The first two services. I didn't want to try it with you here. Sorry. <laughs> I found the pearl of greatest price. My heart doth sing for joy, and sing I must. A Christ I have. Oh, what a Christ have I! So in this lyric, Jesus is the pearl. And again, if that's if you want to really hold strong to that, you can, but I believe it's not accurate. Or at least my interpretation is that it's not accurate. I love the next verse of the stanza. It says, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the way to God on high. It's a wonderful song, but it has assigned the pearl of great price to Jesus, our King, when I believe the church is the pearl of great price. So what do I mean? Well, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant. I believe that's Jesus. And the beautiful pearls he seeks is the church. But why liken the church to a pearl? After all, a pearl begins as nothing more than an irritating grain of sand stuck in the shell of an oyster. Um, some of you might understand what that's like. You might have people that you know, maybe in this church, that are like a grain of sand to you. They're irritating. I hope I'm not one of them. Um, but if I am, you're going to learn how to fix that. When a grain of sand enters the oyster's shell, the oyster surrounds the grain with a crystalline covering, which over many years hardens and becomes a precious, precious, beautiful, and very valuable pearl. And I think that sometimes relationships can start out that way. They start out just as happy as a clam, or an oyster in this case. But then the irritation of the relationship begins and it becomes strained. If you treat the person who annoys you like the oyster treats the grain of sand by covering their irritativeness with love for many years, perhaps they will become a precious, beautiful, and very valuable friend, just like the pearl in the story. Now, that's getting a little off topic. I just thought I'd throw that out there for you who have somebody who's irritating you um, and how you should respond to them. It says, those who study pearls say the most beautiful pearls take seven years to form. During that seven-year period, the irritating piece of sand is hidden away, clothed and covered with beauty. And really, that's all of us. Let's face it, we can all be irritating pieces of sand. Yet the Lord loves us and clothes us with his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's interesting to compare the time it takes for a pearl to form, which is seven years, 
to what happens to the believers after they're raptured. And I just want to point out, there's, our church has grown so much that there are people who don't know what I'm talking about right now, and that's okay. Um, I don't know if most of you do about end times, eschatology, the rapture, tribulation period, the millennial reign of Christ. Um, we're actually, Pastor Brent's going to be taking the month of September, last I heard, and going, in th- going through all of that for the month of September, just to get everybody on understanding what it is that we believe when it comes to eschatology. So, getting back to the pearl. What happens to believers after they're raptured? How that relates to the Jewish wedding traditions. For instance, after being whisked from, their, from her home, the Jewish bride remained hidden at the groom's father's house for seven days. The pearl of great price, his bride, that's us, the church, will remain hidden for a seven for a, for a period of seven years during the tribulation period. And then after the seven days, the Jewish bride left the bridal chamber unveiled. And likewise, after seven years, his bride, the church, will return to the earth with Christ, all of which will be in our glorified bodies in full view of those who enter into the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And I just love how God just weaves all that through as you really get into his word and just see all the different um, comparisons and it's just it's wonderful i just love the way you god is awesome can i get a god is awesome yeah okay so the merchant in this parable jesus paid the ultimate price he gave his life to purchase us why would he do that because he loves us and because in order for us to be saved and live with him for all eternity jesus had to take our place and die to pay the penalty for sin the sin that we owed He had to lay down his perfect sinless life as a sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. His sacrifice was perfect in holiness, in worth, and in power to save. And if you believe in him, then you are the pearl of great price because you're a member of the church and the church is the bride of Christ. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and his righteousness is a thing of matchless beauty and unspeakable value in the eyes of God. And now before we move on to the parable of the dragnet, I want to just recap the first two parables. And I also want to touch on the Jewish nation, um, the nation of Israel. And in the first, par- the first parable of the hidden treasure, what we established was that in the church age, it is the church that is the treasure that Jesus seeks. But we also see in the book of Exodus and throughout the Psalms that the nation of Israel is referred to as a peculiar, special treasure. Psalm 135 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. As you read scripture, you realize that Israel was entrusted with the riches of God's heart and mind and with the word. Israel was placed in the world to be a light for the world. But what happened? Israel didn't evangelize. She didn't shine forth like she should have, but instead turned inward. The Jews chose to hide themselves in their tradition, saying, Gentiles? gross. Don't talk to them. Don't look at them. Don't reach out to them. Certainly don't share God's word. In fact, if you accidentally happen to brush against one, take your clothes off and burn them. They did not like Gentiles. So instead of enriching the Gentiles, Israel, the treasure, became hidden in the world because Israel missed her calling. I just want to interject a little bit and just look at us as the church um, in our day. And um, can we become like Israel was when it comes to sharing God's word? Are we as believers starting to look at unbelievers like Israel looked at the Gentiles? 
Are we disgusted with the behavior of the world as sin is running rampant in our culture and being forced upon the culture and the church to accept? Are we hardened towards the unbelievers as they try and tear down the godly principles that established our constitutional God-given rights and attempt to destroy the family unit and anything about God? Church, it's easy to fall into that trap. It's easy to shut them out, but that's not what we're called to do. Like Israel should have done, we must evangelize. We must let our light shine through and, t- and turn outward to them and not inward with love in our hearts for the lost. Amen? Amen? They need us. There are those that teach today that Israel has no place in the kingdom, that God is done with Israel. But in this parable, I believe Jesus teaches the treasure will indeed surface and prove very valuable. The Jews were dispersed throughout the entire world and even though they have been regathered into their land, there's still a hidden treasure. It's true that Israel failed historically, but she's going to succeed eventually. In Revelation 7, it says that after the church is raptured, Israel will suddenly become a mighty instrument of evangelism in the world during the tribulation period. Just think of the two witnesses who will prophesy and the 144,000 Jewish men who will preach the gospel during the tribulation period. Israel will enrich the world in the time of the tribulation. And church, understand this. God is not done with Israel. Incredibly, there are pastors who teach that Israel has no place in God's prophetic plan. But it's not true. It's not biblical. You have to just have to read your Bible. Romans chapter 9 to 11 makes it very clear that although Israel has been set aside for a while, hidden, she shall resurface as God's instrument. Look at what it says in Romans 11, 25 to 27. It says, For I, did, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. So God's not done with Israel. And in the parable of the Pearl Great Price, the church is a major aspect of the kingdom. It's interesting that the church is likened unto a pearl. Where is a pearl formed? In the oyster, in the oyster shell. Where is the oyster found? It's found in the sea. So what? Well, in the book of Daniel and Revelation, the sea is always symbolic of the Gentile nations. Where was the church formed? Predominantly through Gentile nations. Now, before I'm corrected by some, there are some believing Jews in the church, and of course, the, the early disciples who began the church. But in the big picture, there aren't very many in the church today that are Jewish. And interestingly, a pearl is the only gem that doesn't need to be cut to bring out its beauty. All those beautiful diamonds and rubies and sapphires, they have to be cut perfectly by an expert or they're worthless, but not in a pearl. In fact, if you even scratch a pearl, you've ruined it. So why liken the church to a pearl? What makes the church as beautiful as a pearl? Well, unlike the current woke culture in North America sees and how they see the church with their many ungodly agendas, in the true church, there is neither male or female, Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free. The church is one, one Lord, one baptism, and one faith. And that is how the church finds her beauty. She finds her beauty in unity, the unity of all kinds of people brought together in Christ. 
but in the church, man always feels the need to create divisions, and there are so many. And those divisions only mar her beauty. Those divisions tend to scratch the beautiful pearl, and to be honest, that's the biggest problem we have with denominations. There can be a tendency in denominationalism to start dividing the body in Christ, of Christ instead of enjoying all that we have in Christ. It says in the book of John, chapter 17, and verse 21, it says that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I don't know if it's too late. It might be too late as we rapidly approach the end of the church age to establish this kind of unity, and that's sad if it's true, but we still need to keep trying and realize that we need to keep it simple and essential. Not quarrel and divide over what is inconsequential. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? Amen. <coughs> okay, let's tackle this dragnet parable. In verse 47, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Who here believes there is a literal hell? There is a literal hell. And people need to understand that. So in this third illustration that we look at, Jesus teaches his disciples yet another aspect of the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. He's likening it to that of a fisherman hauling in a great catch, which they're all very aware of that. So the net is full and it's drawn to shore and it's there that they gathered the good fish and separated the bad fish. The good fish are placed in vessels and the bad are thrown away. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus then begins to explain what this parable means. He's referring to a very specific time in history that occurs at the end of the age. And what is the end of the age? It's the time in history that begins after the church is raptured, and it's at the end of the tribulation period, when Christ returns. <clears throat> Jesus shows us that the world is going to be divided right up until the end. And guess what? As hard as the church might try to make this a perfect environment for Jesus to return, it's not going to happen. There is no kingdom now, as so many today believe. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the good fish and the bad fish must be separated before the millennial reign of Christ begins. And that is the reason Jesus gives us this parable. So who does the separating of the wicked from the just? Jesus tells us that the fishermen who are separating the wicked fish from the just fish are angels. And the good fish being separated are end times believers. The wicked, the fools, who disregard God's word are the ones who took the mark and worshipped the beast rather than the worship God. And they're the bad fish. The just are the ones who refuse to take the mark or worship the beast. They are the saints who worshiped and served the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they couldn't buy or sell, or even when they knew it would cost them their lives as they were being hunted down for execution. We are seeing similar things happening in our day um, that sort of direct us to the fact that this is all going to happen. It's very real, and we're all headed in that direction right now. 
Now, this is where I want you to pay attention, because if you've been sleeping through most of this message, now's the time to wake up and pay attention, like my wife would do. She gives me a little nudge. Um, I don't do it very often, just so you know. I'm always very attentive to when Pastor Brent is teaching, or others, but every now and then I have a nod. So it's important to understand what's happening here, because it's possible that even right now, people attending churches or watching online or maybe somebody that you know or work with, a loved one, any person outside of Christ could be one of these people being separated. In fact, well, I'll just keep going. Can be one of these people being separated by the angels either to life eternal and entering the thousand-year millennial kingdom or being cast into the furnace of fire. Look what it says. The angels will come forth, separating the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And you might be thinking, I I think a lot of people just think of end times as like way off in the future. But seriously, this could happen so quick. The rapture of believers in Christ is what? What do we always say it is? It's imminent. What does imminent mean? It means I might not have to finish this message, right? Could happen anytime. There is no anything that has to happen before the rapture. So if the rapture was to occur right now, what's it going to be followed by? Seven-year tribulation period. We don't know exactly what the time frame is after the rapture that it starts, but it's going to start fairly soon after. So there's probably, well, no, I know there is. There are people listening right now, and if they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then when the believers are taken up to heaven, they're going to be left on this earth and be facing the soon coming tribulation period. And this is people that we know. I know a ton of people that are not saved. And if I got, sorry, last time I said if I got raptured. If we all got raptured, um, then um, they're on their own. They're going to go through the seven year tribulation period. And that's frightening. I think this through. The events of this parable could, and I'm not, and I'm not date setting because that's totally wrong, but it's possible that it could incur in less than 10 years. So it's possible that somebody sitting here listening uh, online or just anywhere in the world could hear this and I'm t- what I'm basically telling them is if you don't get saved, you run the potential of going through the tribulation period either as tribulation saint who's going to lose their life but anyway i'll get into all that later um so what's really happening here what makes some people the good fish and i just i really want people to understand this is could happen so fast this could be so real the tribulation could be a a very short period of time away and there's going to be people that are really suffering through that so as we look at the tribulation period what makes some people the good or just fish and others the wicked fish who are cast into the fiery furnace. The good fish are those who rejected the message of salvation in the church age. They chose to miss flight 777 to heaven, otherwise known as the rapture. Now after the rapture, after the church is raptured and while they're living through the tribulation period, there will be those who will hear the gospel, accept Christ as their savior and refuse to take the mark or worship the image of the beast. And the Bible tells us that a great number of people will place their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. The gospel is going to be preached all over the world, and God's going to provide several different ways of getting out his good news of salvation. So let's look at some. 
There's still going to be Bibles in the tribulation period, I believe. Many have been strategically hidden for just this time in history. When God's judgment begins to fall, many people will realize that the world has gone crazy and begin searching for answers and searching for hope. Perhaps they'll remember what their friends and family or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor, strangers or just anybody who was sharing the good news told them about end times and about the good news and of Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ really is and they'll find the answers in the pages of the scripture. The scripture also teaches that there will be two witnesses that God gives them the power to prophesy. These two men will be untouchable while they prophesy and perform great miracles for three and a half years. And then there's going to be the 144,000 Jewish missionaries from the 12 tribes who are redeemed and sealed by God during the tribulation. Scripture tells us that immediately following the description of their sealing in Revelation 7, there will be multitudes, literally millions of people who are saved from every corner of the world and become the tribulation saints. Now regarding these tribulation saints, they will faithfully serve Jesus in the midst of the most desperate surroundings the world has ever experienced. If you think what's happening in our world right now is getting crazy, that some of our liberty, liberties are being taken away and we're being told we can't do certain things, if we don't do certain things, then you have no concept of how bad the tribulation period is going to be. This is nothing compared to that. And it's going to get worse because listen to what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation period. After the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will grant power to give breath to the image of the beast. Has anybody seen the giant? Yeah? Familiar with that thing? There's 21 of them going to 21 cities. It's just a huge, massive, um, walk, uh, not walking yet, but talking and moving and does all kinds of crazy things that they're bringing into cities. Um, not saying that's the image of the beast or the beast. Um, I'm just saying technology is just moving in such fast ways. It says that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. But these tribulation saints will be faithful to the end, with many of these believers being tracked down and persecuted to death. In fact, the Bible clearly mentions in Revelation 20, verse 4, that the Antichrist will have them beheaded because they have refused to worship the beast and take the mark. I heard a pastor mention the other day that getting saved during the tribulation is no way to get ahead. Just trying to lighten the mood a little bit. Might have been a bad idea. These are the people who refused the gift of salvation that was offered during the church age. These tribulation believers will be allowed to enter into the kingdom, but in a different way or a different category than Israel or the church. And maybe you know people who say something like this. I don't want to get saved right now. I like my life the way it is. I'm going to wait and see how things work out. If all you crazy Christians really do disappear, then I'll know the Bible's true. And if some global leader, antichrist guy really does try and force me to take a mark, I'm not going to do it. I won't take his mark, and there's no way I'll worship the beast. That's where I'll draw the line, and I'll get saved. Trouble is, they're not living in reality. Because what makes them think that if you don't want to surrender your life to Jesus now, when there's little persecution, it's relatively easy for you to make that decision, 
that you're going to do that when you're under strong delusion combined with relentless persecution and the threat of death. Don't be crazy. Church, if those who continue to reject salvation get saved during the tribulation, great. That's fantastic. But it's probably going to cost them their lives. And if they choose to go that route, sure, they'll make it into the kingdom, but in a much different position than if they receive Jesus today. Church, don't stop praying for the unsaved that God places in our lives. We have a tendency to give up on them. Don't do that. Don't give up hope. And look for opportunities to just have those moments when you can sneak a little of God's word in with them and just keep them in prayer, amen? Because these people that we know and love, if they don't choose Jesus now, they may end up in this tribulation period, and it's rough. So church, what did we learn today? We learned that the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure. Who is that hidden treasure? I believe that's Israel and the church. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. Who is the pearl of great price? I believe that's the church, the bride of Christ. Who is the man in the first parable? I believe that's Jesus. And who is the merchant in the second parable? I believe also that that is Jesus. And finally, the kingdom of heaven is like the dragnet. We have the just fish, the tribulation saints at the end of the, of the age. And there will be so many people that are going to be cast into the fiery furnace. And that is so sad. So we have three distinct groups of people, yet one kingdom. All three groups made up of believers who came to Christ by faith in some very different circumstances, but all in the same way, by believing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. I implore you, if you have not given your life to God, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, trusted God's word, and surrendered your your life to him and repented of your sin, I, I'm just, again, I implore you to do that because no one knows the day or hour when Jesus will come for his bride. And until that day comes, what do we do as the church while we wait with great anticipation? And we need to get excited. As we see all the craziness happening in the world, what does it mean to us as believers? Jesus is coming soon. I think sooner than most of us are even cluing in on. I don't know when that is, but the Bible's very clear. When you see all of these things converging and speeding up, look up. Your redemption is, draws nigh. So what do we do while we're here, while we're anticipating our being united with our bridegroom? We remain faithful to him, and we say with all the redeemed of the Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Let's say that together. Come, Lord Jesus. And I pray he does soon. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, I don't know where I would be if I did not have your word. Lord, it is what gives me peace. It is what keeps me going on the right track. Lord, it is, I don't know how the, the unsaved of the world are managing right now. I don't know how people do it without your word. Without knowing you, Lord. Without having, being filled with your spirit. And so thank you for your word. Thank you that you show us in advance what's happening so we can know and that we can get excited, Father, for your return. And I pray, Lord, that more and more of us will get serious about sharing the gospel. Serious about just forget about all the crazy stuff that's going on in our world and our lives. Uh, I mean, it's sometimes we have to pay attention, Lord, to some of those things, but let it not be the total focus. Let our focus be on getting out the word, sharing the gospel, um, just giving hope to people 
And uh, Lord, may we do everything that your word tells us to do. Every time we read the word, Lord, may we not just read it, but may we hear it and put it into our hearts and commit to do it. Lord, let us be faithful followers of you. And Lord, I just pray, again, give us peace, give us courage um, that only you can give us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.